Donald Trump today predicting he will be stuck in court over some, quote, bullshit. His word, not mine. The lead starts right now. Donald Defiant, back on the campaign trail this afternoon, pushing back on prosecutors who want to restrict what he can say publicly about the federal indictment. Plus, that hideous riverboat brawl. New charges just announced after a black employee was rushed on an Alabama boating dock by a group of white men. And Americans in debt for the first time ever. Credit card debt surpassed $1 trillion as more Americans pull from their own retirement savings for help. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today with our law and justice lead. The federal grand jury here in Washington, D.C., the same one that indicted Donald Trump last week, is back behind closed doors today for the first time since handing down those unprecedented charges for Donald Trump's unprecedented actions. It's a clear sign that the investigation into the efforts to overturn the 2020 election is not over. And it raises questions about six co-conspirators listed in the indictment and whether they could soon also face federal charges for their actions. We also just got some new court filings from both Trump's lawyers and special counsel Jack Smith's team. U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin asked both sides to propose a day this week where they could discuss what restrictions, if any, should be placed on Mr. Trump's ability to publicly share evidence. But Trump's team is now pushing to delay that meeting until next week, citing his busy legal schedule. Let's get straight to CNN's Paula Reed. Paula, let's start with the federal grand jury that met right down the street today. Do we know how many more witnesses they will hear from and when more indictments could potentially come? Well, Jake, our Casey Gannon, who stakes out the courthouse for us, saw the grand jury come in today. They worked about half a day, but they did not appear to hear from any witnesses. Now, we know yesterday, we, of course, broke the story on your show yesterday, that the special counsel interviewed Bernie Carrick. Now, he is a close associate of co-conspirator number one, Rudy Giuliani. This was a hotly anticipated interview. We got a readout from it, and I'm told that he did get a lot of questions, not only about Rudy Giuliani, but also about Sidney Powell, another one of the co-conspirators. But it does not appear, according to Carrick and his attorney, that they gave them sufficient evidence to support a superseding indictment or a new indictment against, for example, Rudy Giuliani. And at this point, there are no plans for Carrick to go before the grand jury to testify. But as of now, Jake, we know that the special counsel prosecutors are expected to sit down with at least one other witness. And at this point, we're not aware of any plans to bring another witness before the grand jury over the next few days. All right, let's turn to this squabble between Trump's lawyers and the Justice Department over what evidence can be shared. Uh, When do we expect to hear from Judge Chutkin? I would expect to hear from her pretty soon. We know Trump's lawyers, uh, they're asking to delay any potential hearing over this protective order that would dictate the extent to which the former president can share sensitive information uh, that he learns about in the process of discovery. So when they receive the evidence that could be used at a trial. Now, she appears to want to do this hearing this week. So the fact that the Trump lawyers are asking to delay it next week, uh, that could be because of their schedules. But we know, Jake... Part of the overall defense strategy in both of the special counsel prosecutions is to delay, delay, delay. 
And the delay of a few days doesn't seem like much, but if you can do that a dozen times over the course of this investigation, in this case, you could potentially help push a possible trial until after the election. So I don't know if Judge Chutkin is going to go for that. So far, what we've seen from her in her scheduling orders is that she is trying to move this along as quickly as possible. She wouldn't even give them an extension to respond to her about the protective order. So I would expect a decision quickly, and I would be surprised if she lets this hearing slide until next week. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Tom Dupree. He served as the principal deputy assistant attorney general under President George W. Bush. Uh, Tom, let's start with the grand jury meeting today. We know that none of the co-conspirators alluded to in the indictment have, as of now, been charged with anything. Now, CNN has identified five of the six as former Trump lawyers Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, and Sidney Powell, former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark, and pro-Trump lawyer Kenneth Chesbro. What do you think the likelihood is that some, if not all, of the six co-conspirators will be charged? I think it is very likely that most, if not all of them, will be charged. I think what the special counsel's thinking here is, is he basically wanted to plant a flag with this original indictment. He constructed a case that's streamlined. He initially named a single defendant. The special counsel understands he's in a race against the clock. And so I think he made a strategic, deliberate, tactical decision to name just former President Trump for now. But there is no question in my mind, based on the allegations in that indictment and the evidence we know the special counsel has already gathered to date, that indictments are almost certainly forthcoming for all of those unnamed co-conspirators. Do you think they would be charged, theoretically, if they are, uh, separately from Trump? That's a great question. My, my guess is probably not, but it wouldn't surprise me if he did charge separately. It, it seems to me most natural that they would basically be added to this case as it currently exists, just because the evidence is overlapping, the legal theories in all likelihood are also going to be overlapping, and it might seem a bit artificial if they were charged separately. That said, it doesn't necessarily mean that all would be tried together or that the cases would all proceed on the same schedule. I think the special counsel's far and away number one priority is moving the case against former President Trump ahead quickly and let the other cases follow in its wake. Let's talk about this uh, debate over evidence sharing. Prosecutors want to restrict what Trump and his team will be able to share publicly in terms of the evidence. Uh, Part of their new argument is that they feel Trump's team wants to try this case in the press. Uh, Prosecutors point to the arguments that Trump's lawyer made when he appeared on five Sunday shows uh, two days ago. Is there a strong legal argument that can be made based on that? Look, I think both sides have reasonable arguments here, to be honest. Um, I think that from the special counsel's perspective, this is just, from their view, a standard protective order that they're asking the judge to approve, not that different from what you would impose in other cases. I think from former President Trump's perspective, he does see this as an infringement on his ability to offer public commentary. As we know, this is not a typical criminal defendant who remains mum and follows the advice of his lawyers to stay silent. To the contrary, he enjoys offering pretty much running commentary, often zesty commentary um, on the proceedings, on everything, the judge, his opponent, the special counsel. And so I think they're going to be pushing as hard as they can to have complete freedom to comment on the evidence. My best guess here, Jake, is that the judge is going to come down somewhere in the middle. I'd be a little surprised if she approved what seems to be a pretty broad protective order that the special counsel is demanding. But on the other hand, I can't imagine a world in which she gives former President Trump free reign to continue commenting and to comment on evidence. Zesty is your word for it. Uh-huh. 
Zesty. It's a interesting. That, that was my word of choice, Jake. There well are other chosen. Adjectives I could have used. Well chosen. But uh, to play devil's advocate, why should anyone believe that Donald Trump would follow any restrictions at all at this point, given the fact that he has this propensity, as you note, to offer free flowing commentary uh, one way or another? Oh, look, I think that the first battle is going to be the scope of the protective order. I think the second battle is when the special counsel accuses former President Trump of violating whatever protective order is imposed. Um, I suspect that regardless of what the judge says, I don't think it's going to have that dramatic an effect on what former President Trump says publicly. And so I think we are in a world. This is the first skirmish of what are going to be many long battles over the course of the month concerning commentary that former President Trump offers on these proceedings as they move ahead. All right, Tom Dupree, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our politics lead now and what's happening on the other side of the 2024 race. This hour, President Biden is in Arizona, where in just a few minutes he is set to tour the Grand Canyon. Earlier today, uh, President Biden delivered a speech on protecting public lands, and he dedicated a new national monument around the Grand Canyon, part of a Southwest swing, swing by President Biden to mark the one-year anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act, his landmark legislation that focused on climate and the economy. He's also, we should note, doing so in a battleground state that he won in 2020 and wants to win again. Let's discuss. Aisha, thanks so much uh, for being here. So the White House uh, clearly uh, trying to gin up excitement for President Biden's 2024 campaign. Yes. Um, his CNN's poll from last week found that President Biden's approval rating is at only 41 percent. Mm-hmm. Only 37 percent of Americans approve of his handling of the economy. I, I, I said this in our staff meeting today. I feel like I've been noting this for three years. <laughs> President Biden is out there heralding such and such, and the American yeah, people disapprove overwhelmingly. Yeah. Three years in, we're still having this conversation. Still having the conversation because there is not, the connection isn't happening. And I know that has to be frustrating for his staff because when you look at the economy, when you look at the raw numbers, there's a lot of good there. Unemployment's relatively low. They've been, you know, inflation's coming down, but people aren't feeling that way. I think part of it is because when you have inflation. That's such a pocketbook issue. And it really hit people where they hurt. You got interest rates up. It costs, you know, a million dollars to get a house. I'm just talking about around here. I might be just complaining about myself. But, you know, (laughs) it's just a lot. Like, everything feels more expensive. And I think that's the issue that they have, is that they have not been able to connect and make people feel like Biden has done something for them. And I think it's hard because Biden is not that type of candidate that gets people all worked up in their hearts um, to feel, you know, very warm and fuzzy about them. Yeah. And Margaret, there's some major news on the other side of the presidential race today. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has replaced his campaign manager as his campaign continues to struggle to to catch fire the way that he and his supporters thought it would have done by now. Um, he's dropped in the polls pretty consistently since he launched his campaign. Um, what, what do you make of this latest move? I mean, the move satisfies a number of boxes for Governor DeSantis. Uh, one, uh, his team, his donors, everybody was sort of demanding it. It's like when you're stuck in the mud, you got to make a change, and the campaign manager makes sense. But number two, person he's tapping has been his chief of staff in the governor's office. This is somebody who's got some national experience. He uh, staffed uh, Wilbur Ross, I think, when he was the Commerce Secretary under Donald Trump. He's been involved in that kind of nexus of political stuff that you can do under the auspices of governor, like moving the migrants to 
blue places like, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever, Martha's Vineyard, et cetera. And so this is obviously someone who he trusts. Uh, Is it going to work? I don't know. Maybe. What's he got to lose? But there is a pattern in practice. You'll remember Donald Trump has dumped a number of campaign managers. This worked in 2016. It did not get him over the finish line in 2020. But if you do it early enough, it can serve as a reset. And DeSantis is looking for different ways to reset. This is one of them. And Aisha, the DeSantis campaign told the messenger that this was their last, quote, reload. (laughs) Um, If DeSantis fails to catch fire after the first debate, which is in a couple weeks, is that a sign that maybe the staffing isn't the issue? I think that's that that's the issue that he has. Is it the staffing or is it him? I feel like he was kind of like a rebound boyfriend, right? Like you get you have a bad breakup, you get with the new person, it's all hot and heavy at first, but then after the honeymoon period it kind of fizzles out and you want that old thing back. That's what the GOP wants. They want that old thing. They want Trump, the tried and true, the steady, all of that. And it just doesn't feel like DeSantis has figured out how he can hit Trump. And make damage. Like, he knows how to hit the left. He does not know how to hit Trump. And to get to the nomination, you got to go through Trump, not through the left. And, Margaret, when it comes to the debate, listen to what Donald Trump said during a campaign stop this afternoon. Okay, you ready? Poll. We take a free poll. Should I do the debate? (laughs) Well, maybe we'll do something else. Mm. That seemed to be people chanting no and doing the thumbs down. By the way, that's not a poll. I mean, that's, <laughs> not, not just for the record. For the record that's You're just not, tuning that's in. Not a, that's not a poll. Uh, but do you think he's con- considering showing up? Does it matter? Because what he's telling us is what we already knew, which is that whether he shows up or not, it will be a predicate for the conversation he wants to have on the terms he wants to have it. And in the old days, I, I think this might be true, there was a mythical old days Or if you would have debates, it would be like around the issues and you would say, what differentiates one candidate from the other? If I if I put my uh, vote towards this person, what would I be getting as a result in terms of policy, in terms of reliability? You pledge me something on stage and you will have to follow through on that pledge. I I think that's all different now and that this is a show. I'm not trying to poo poo debates. I'm a journalist. I'll cover a debate. Great. But what this is telling us is that he is seeing this as another stage for the show and not a real decision about whether to discuss substance in a serious setting. Right. And Aisha, we should note the former Vice President Mike Pence um, is the latest Republican candidate to qualify for the debate stage. Um, but what does it say about this race that seven other candidates qualified for that stage before the most recent vice president of the United States? I mean, it shows like how, you know, right now this is, well, we know it's not traditional. This is not, this is not traditional politics. And it shows how much of a problem Pence has because what is his argument for why you should vote for him? He doesn't really, like when it comes to the base, like his whole case would be what he did with Donald Trump, but Donald Trump doesn't want him. So now he has to make the case for like, why should I be the one? And I don't think he's come up with that. Like he has not come up with the reason for Mike Pence, and I think a lot of them have to answer that question. I don't know that they've answered it. There are a few people that still haven't made the stage. Former Governor Asa Hutchinson, uh, Miami Mayor, uh, Mayor um, Francis Suarez. Do you think it's campaign ending if you can't make the debate stage? Uh, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure. It might be campaign ma- ending if you do make the debate stage, <laughs> by the way. It seems like there's such a limited window. In order for any of those folks to break through, two things have to happen. They need to rise quickly, and something needs to happen to change Donald Trump's dynamic. Otherwise, this is a one-man contest. Maybe a fourth indictment will be the charm. <laughs> Maybe. 
Maybe. Unlikely. Unlikely. (laughs) Aisha and Margaret, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the charges just in from that riverfront brawl and the questions police have after reviewing the tape. And the crackdown in Iran on women willing to live their lives when the regime may think the world isn't watching. In our law and justice lead moments ago in Montgomery, Alabama, police charged three men with assault for their involvement in a chaotic and violent brawl over the weekend. Some viewers might find this video disturbing. Punches thrown, people hit with chairs, someone even tossed into the water. All of it unfolded on a popular riverfront dock as police tried to get the situation under control. CNN's Ryan Young is in Montgomery where police gave an update on their investigation. And Ryan, you just spoke with Montgomery's police chief and the mayor, what did they have to say? Yeah, also, Jake, we just got a picture of Damian Pickett. He is the co-pilot of this boat. He is the man seen getting attacked over and over after getting off this boat. And we've learned that this man is quite beloved by the crew that's on this boat. In fact, Jake, as we take you back live here, we wanted to show you this boat that's now docked here. This is the normal position for this boat. They were trapped out there on the water, and apparently all these boats were lined up, stopping them from being able to dock. For about a half hour to 45 minutes, they kept asking the people on the boat to move. And at some point, Mr. Pickett came across to try to move the boat so this boat, the Harriet 2, could dock. And that's when all this chaos broke out. And you listen to the mayor and the police chief. They were quite disappointed by how this city has been framed over the last few hours because obviously this is going quite viral. Take a listen to them and the charges that could be coming next. We put everything that we had into making sure that the right charges are uh, presented and that these folks will face uh, the appropriate charges in, in, a, in their day in court. I think it tells a, a you know, really a, a story of people who took some bad actions, uh, did not use good judgment, and in some cases just had no regard for authority. And that, that, that's problematic any time you have that in our city. Yeah, three men are going to face assault a third. That's what they call it here. They're misdemeanor charges, Jake. One man's already under arrest. They wouldn't tell us which of the men are under arrest just right now. Two others will be probably picked up in Selma at some point. But as you can understand, this video has been traumatizing. Talking to people who are actually on the boat, they're saying watching their co-pilot come across and being hit like that over and over again. And then the people did not try to flee. They actually walked around and engaged even more. So there's additional questions here about whether or not more people who are on that boat will face charges. But you can understand this is really kind of racially charged things up because when you watch the video, you do see an older black man being beaten by several white people. And then, of course, at that point, people rushed on to help him out. So you can understand the fear and anger here. Yeah, it's a grim scene. Ryan Young in Montgomery, Alabama. Thanks so much. Coming up next. What sources are revealing to CNN about the sobering reality about Ukraine's counteroffensive and what might need to be recalibrated as this war continues to drag on? And they accused former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment and now new revelations about a stealth campaign to smear their reputations. The new reporting from the New York Times ahead. Topping our world lead today, a sobering reality check on Ukraine's long-anticipated counteroffensive, which seems to be falling short of what the U.S. and Ukraine's Western allies had hoped. CNN's chief national security correspondent Jim Shuto has new reporting on this for us. And, and Jim, according to your sources, 
What is going wrong? Why haven't Ukrainian forces been able to to retake more territory from the Russians? Partly this is a story about Russian defenses. They had months to dig in in the east. They have three defensive belts, heavily mined, tens of thousands of mines, literally, a complex network of trenches where they're highly dug in. And they have some air support to a greater degree than the Ukrainians have as they're assaulting this. Uh, The the assaulting force is always going to be at a disadvantage. They say you want to be three to one at least. Ukrainians are about one to one. It's just a really, really tough job for Ukrainian forces to try to accomplish. As you describe the Russian tactics, trenches, mines, barbed wire. I mean, honestly, it sounds like World War I, um, which was, of course, more than a century ago. Mm -hmm. Are there not modern weapons or tactics that can break through these these old uh, tactics? There are. I mean, there are devices that can go through minefields, blow up some of those mines. Of course, there's mine detection equipment and so on. And, and of of course, if we've covered for for weeks and months, Ukrainians have been supplied with highly advanced U.S. Bradley fighting vehicles, for instance, armored personnel carriers, German Leopard tanks. But uh, what I've been told is the training on those systems has really been quite short, eight weeks on some of these systems. And it it seems there's now a growing feeling that the attempt to transform the Ukrainian armed forces into large mechanized fighting units, which takes U.S. forces months, years of training to do, to try to do that in weeks may have been a bridge too far. So given all the difficulties, are the Ukrainians adjusting their tactics? They are in some ways. They've been doing more dismounted attacks, in effect, leaving the armored vehicles uh, and and, uh, attacking as best they can. But they've also been pulling back some of their forces, Ukrainian forces. They endured just staggering losses, Jake, in these assaults, both in terms of KIA, but also wounded in action from mines, horrible wounds. And Ukrainian commanders, understandably, pulled some of those units back to to reduce those casualties. They became more casualty-averse, but that adjustment by its nature has meant that the progress has been more plotting. And what is ahead? I mean, we have the fall coming up. Mm -hmm. What what is Putin hoping for? Well, Putin is is hoping to wait everybody out, uh, and he thinks that he can wait not just the Ukrainians out, but the West. He hopes that over time the West will grow impatient. With Ukraine more divided and therefore less likely to support them, that's his hope. Ukrainians, though, and their Western backers say they still have fight in them. But I will just tell you, from speaking to these sources for weeks and months, going back to before the war started, this is the most pessimistic I've heard of them. Okay. Jim Shuda, thanks so much. Great reporting. Also on our world lead, it has been nearly a year since the death, some would say murder, of 22-year-old Amasa Gina Amini, a Kurdish-Iranian woman who died in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police after she showed just a little bit of her hair. Iranian women, nonetheless, are still courageously defying the regime, refusing to wear the hijab in public. But, as CNN's Jamana Karadshe reports, the merciless efforts to stop these women are getting increasingly dangerous. Iran's brave women are fighting for their freedom with everyday acts of defiance like this out on the streets without the mandatory hijab. This recent video appeared to show a woman harassed and called a criminal for refusing to cover up. The days of being afraid of you are over, she says. Nearly a year after the death of 22-year-old Masa Gina Amini in the custody of the so-called morality police, the uprising sparked by her death may have been crushed by a bloody crackdown but not the will of those standing up for their most basic of rights. 
Countless women have been defying the clerical establishment, choosing not to wear the compulsory hijab. And now the regime is lashing out with a campaign of renewed repression, announcing the return of morality police patrols. Being a woman in Iran is now harder than ever. Because of all the attention, our privacy and safety is a wish. You should always be worried and careful about police. This young woman, we're not identifying for her safety, spoke to us from inside Iran. The morality police are mostly in metro stations and sometimes on the streets. They warn you. If you disobey, they take video or photos. And normal people who are still on the government side work like paparazzi. And that's not all. Authorities are considering a draconian new bill that would make failure to abide by the strict Islamic dress code a more severe offense with unprecedentedly harsh penalties, including five to ten year jail sentences and fines of more than $8,000. This may be just a warning to intimidate those who dare to dissent. But an intensified crackdown has been well underway. This chilling video released by a group affiliated with the security apparatus captures some of their terrifying tactics. Facial recognition technology purportedly being used to identify and threaten unveiled women. Cameras are everywhere. Thousands have had their cars confiscated, according to Amnesty International, and women without a veil are being denied access to education and public services. Perhaps even more disturbing is courts have been imposing degrading punishments on women, including counseling sessions for, quote, anti-social behavior, cleaning government buildings and washing corpses in morgues. I couldn't believe the mortuary punishment until I saw some judgment papers with my own eyes, which was washing corpses for a month. Are you and other women around you scared when you're out in public? The first days were scary, but with time, the courage inside everyone grows, and now no one is scared. People were just waiting for a spark, and that happened last year. We keep going for the kids who were murdered during the protests. Many like her say this is not just about the hijab. This is about standing up to tyranny, and they're not backing down. Most people believe in freedom now because they've tasted it. We know about the punishments, but we know everything has a cost, and if this is the cost of freedom, we're ready to pay for that. I'm sure we will see Iran breathing again one day. Jamana Karachi, CNN, London. And our thanks to Jamana Karachi. Uh, America's credit card debt is hitting a collective $1 trillion. Might that be a warning sign about the economy? We're going to have expert opinion next. In our money lead today, for the first time ever, America's credit card debt has surpassed $1 trillion. That's according to new data from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. With me now, Mark Zandi, the chief economist for Moody Analytics, to break the stand for us. Mark, what does that mean for all of us, that U.S. credit card debt has surpassed a $1 trillion? Well, Jake, it indicates that uh, there are some Americans that are under you know, significant financial stress. Uh, I think the particularly low-income households, middle-income households, folks that make less than 60, 70 K a year, they got rocked by the very high inflation. Uh, you know, if you're paying more for uh, filling your gas tank or you know, putting groceries on the table, paying your rent, turn to credit cards to help out and fill that uh, purchase power gap. So I think we've seen a, a lot of borrowing as a result of that. Middle-income households, high-income households, no problem. You know, they're using their cards, but not to, to borrow. They're paying their cards back, you know, each month. But for lower-income households, I, I do think it indicates uh, some financial stress. 
So meanwhile, I mean, these people are getting shish kebabbed, right? Because they, they have uh, this credit card debt because inflation's so high. Then the Federal Reserve, in order to, to reduce inflation, is raising interest rates. So their debt is becoming even more expensive. Um, is this, how troubled are you by this spot of the economy? Like, it seems very reminiscent in some ways um, of the housing problems in, in 2008. No, no, not to that degree, Jake. But I mean, it, it, clearly, it, uh, it's a problem, and you're you're absolutely right. It's not only that these uh, uh, households have taken on a lot more credit card debt, but uh, interest rates on that on those cards have risen quite significantly. So there are interest payments. You know, the, every month they got to shell out now more interest uh, to service that debt, and then of course it means they have less to spend on everything else. But no, we're not in, even in the same ballpark as what happened back in 08, 09. Again, middle income households uh, and high income households. The folks that do the bulk of the spending, they're they're in fine shape. Their their debt loads are actually pretty uh, close to record lows, and they've done a very good job of locking in the previous record low interest rates through mortgage refinancing waves. And so they're in, sitting in a pretty good spot. But for for low income households, uh, you know they're they're struggling with all of this. So the consumer and producer price index reports are set to be released um, at the end of the week. They'll show signs of whether inflation is continuing to cool. What what are you going to be looking at for? Yeah, this is good news, uh, particularly for those low-income households who've been struggling with high inflation. Inflation finally is coming back in. Uh, it's uh, slowing quite dramatically. And we should get a really good report on Thursday. Just It'll you know show an increase, but a very small increase uh, in overall co- consumer price inflation. And it, in the, most encouragingly, it will indicate, I think, that all the trend lines look really good here. So cost of housing services, vehicle prices, you know, uh, food prices, are they're all stable to down, and that should continue as we look through the remainder of the year into next. And uh, that's very encouraging. So, you know, all this stress that people have been under because of the high inflation, that stress should ease, and, and the report on Thursday should indicate that. I like it when you bring us uh, good news, Mark. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. A new spin on an old tactic smearing the reputation of women who make high-profile sexual harassment allegations coming up. New reporting from the New York Times about former Governor Andrew Cuomo and his sister. And we're back with our national lead, a story of generational power and back-channel image rehabilitation. The New York Times reports that former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's sister coordinated with an existing group of Democratic supporters, mostly older women active on Twitter, to try to help fix his public image. This was in 2021, after multiple women accused the Democratic governor of sexual harassment. Madeline Cuomo, the governor's sister, reportedly encouraged a group called We Decide New York, WDNY, to publicly attack, if not smear, the accusers, including Charlotte Bennett, Cuomo's former aide, who alleges that the governor asked her inappropriate questions about her Sex life claims that former Governor Cuomo has denied. One of the group's leaders reportedly tweeted threats such as this one at Bennett, quote, your life will be dissected like a frog in a high school science class. This after Madeline Cuomo reportedly encouraged members of the group to post photos of Bennett from her Instagram, which Madeline Cuomo said made Bennett look like a, quote, bimbo. Madeline reportedly told the We Decide ladies that the governor was, quote, seeing everything but in public, she said he was not involved. The, the, the group's official We Decide Twitter page still states, quote, We stand by New York Governor Cuomo. The New York Times reports that the group has since 
fractured a tad. The group's president told CNN Today, quote, the board of WDNY will not condone the repugnant behavior of Madeleine Cuomo. CNN has also reached out to the governor and his sister. The former governor's spokesperson says Andrew Cuomo, quote, does not personally have, nor does he follow social media accounts, and he was not directly or indirectly involved in these online efforts. When he's had something to say, he is not held back from doing so publicly. His sister Madeline Cuomo tells CNN, quote, to the extent I invoked his name, it was so that the group felt their efforts were appreciated, but it was not at my brother's direction or with his knowledge, unquote. Joining us now, the attorney representing Charlotte Bennett, Deborah Katz. Uh, Ms. Katz, thanks for joining us. Uh, You called Madeline Cuomo's role in all this, quote, shocking but not surprising, unquote. And you say you're looking to use some of the New York Times reporting in Charlotte Bennett's lawsuit against the governor. How? Well, we know from this reporting that uh, Madeline Cuomo did what we knew was happening, which is part of a concerted campaign to try to smear and intimidate complainants from coming forward. Um, Andrew Cuomo was a bully. He surrounded himself with people who tried to intimidate and bully women who came forward. And this is shocking that such behavior exists, but it's not surprising because this is the hallmark of the Cuomo administration. He was a bully and his sister was too. You heard in the statement to CNN that Madeline Cuomo denies that any of this was at her brother's uh, direction. Obviously, that's not the suggestion made in the trove of emails and phone messages and the like that the New York Times uh, reviewed. So, so which do you believe? I believe what she said to the members of the group, but we will take discovery. We will depose Madeline Cuomo. We will depose Andrew Cuomo, and we will depose members of this group. It is clear to us that Andrew Cuomo had a, a group of advisors who were doing everything that they could to try to beat back the women who were coming forward and this was just part of the campaign. No one took action without it being sanctioned and, and directed by uh, the governor, then governor, and then former governor and his inner circle. You know, I, I will say, having seen a lot of online activity and mobs going after people, especially uh, women who make accusations against powerful men, it really makes you wonder how much, if any of it, uh, is organic versus how much of it is is being pushed by these high-profile men. Well, I think that's a really key point here. Obviously, in terms of Charlotte Bennett's case, this is a watershed moment because we now have peeked behind the screen and see what actually happened. But as someone who represents victims of sexual violence and sexual harassment, this is what everyone fears if they come forward. And now we have the most concrete record of exactly what happens. 4,000 texts from Madeline Cuomo and these individuals coordinating efforts to smear the women who came forward. And the timing of every time Andrew Cuomo was in trouble, there would be efforts to smear the women. It was coordinated, and we see that, and that's exactly why women fear coming forward against the powerful, because they don't want to be treated like this. Does this make your client, Charlotte Bennett, feel uh, relieved in any way, in a weird way, in the fact that this wasn't necessarily organic, this was basically a a political army uh, on the internet of of trolls? I think Charlotte knew from the very beginning that this wasn't organic. This was uh, a coordinated effort. This is exactly what uh, then-Governor Cuomo and then-former Governor Cuomo did to people who came forward. He would just try to smear them, discredit them, 
And it was a shot at other people who would come forward to not do that, because who would want to be treated this way? One of the trolls put something on the Internet saying, your life is going to be dissected like a frog in a high school science class. Who would want that kind of scrutiny? And consider that image. It's so it's such a violent image. Yeah. Deborah Katz, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, Ohio's issue number one, why critics argue Republicans are using this special election happening right now to change the rules on abortion rights so they don't have to deal with what the majority wants. Welcome to the Lead Up Dick Tapper. This hour, a breakthrough study involving a popular weight loss drug and the risk for heart attacks and strokes, why it could impact insurance coverage of the drug. Plus, a major 2024 campaign shakeup among the Republican presidential hopefuls. Might this impact who lands on the first debate stage? But leading this hour, voters are heading to the polls in Ohio for a special election that could determine the future of abortion rights in the state, even though Abortion is technically not on the ballot. This could be a referendum on what may be one of the biggest issues in the 2024 race. We're going to start with CNN's Jeff Zeleny. He's in Columbus, Ohio for us. Jeff, what exactly is on this ballot? Well, Jake, this is all about whether a simple majority is needed to pass a, an amendment to the state's constitution or if it would require a supermajority. At issue, as you said, is that November question on enshrining abortion rights in the state's constitution. But think of it as a two-step process here because Republican lawmakers uh, called this special election for today to try and raise the threshold. And by doing that, it's called issue one. That's all voters are uh, deciding here today. That would raise the threshold from a simple majority of 50% needed to approve an amendment to the state's constitution to 60% needed to approve an amendment to the state's constitution. But that's not all. It would also make it more difficult for um, normal people, citizens, to uh, put forward an amendment to the state's constitution. Right now, uh, something is, uh, uh, signatures are only needed in 44 of the state's 88 counties. If this issue one were to go forward, this would require signatures to be gathered in all 88 Ohio counties, effectively allowing one county to block the rules of the rest of the state. So that is the simple issue here. Is it a majority vote? or a supermajority vote. And Jake's a very interesting crossing of party lines here in this debate as well. So, Jeff, what do you say to somebody who looks at this and says, this just looks like the anti-abortion politicians felt they were going to lose in November on whether to enshrine abortion rights into the state constitution, which would have only required a majority vote. So now they're trying to change the rules on how to pass a constitutional amendment so that the minority gets to have sway over the majority. In other words, if 59% of Ohioans say, no, they want this abortion rights in the state constitution, that's still not going to be enough under these new rules if they pass. That's right. It would take 60%. And Jake, this, of course, is coming in the context of what happened last summer in the wake of the Supreme Court decision. Just about a year ago, we saw the um, the amendment in Kansas passed to enshrine abortion rights there, uh, just shy of 60%. In Kentucky, another red state, just shy of 60% as well. So we asked the Republican Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, who's a leading proponent of issue one, uh, why something like this is constitutional or even appropriate. This is what he said. I think that that's a, a silly idea. I mean, it's a, it's a, this is democracy at work, asking the people, do they want to have the same kind of common sense protections in place that many other states have? Many other states around the country 
Many states don't even allow a citizen-initiated constitutional amendment. Again, uh, the, the political rhetoric from the no side is going to be what it's going to be. But this is a common sense thing for Ohioans to say that we own our Constitution and it shouldn't be for sale to out-of-state special interests. So, Jake, this is also uh, about more than abortion rights. It's also about minimum wage. There's a proposed constitutional constitutional amendment next year that could have Ohio voters decide a minimum wage. So they, uh, the proponents of this are trying to change the rules, if you will, to make it harder to amend this state's constitution. Jeff, how much money has been spent in this special election? The outside money, Jake, has been uh, flooding in this summer. This has been a pretty short campaign, uh, and uh, more than $26 million has been coming in. Um, again, this is crossing Uh, more than just normal party lines. But Democrats, if you look at it that way, are spending more on television ads than Republican um, um, aligned groups. There's been an ad war in television uh, campaigns as well. And this is all going to culminate. The polls are still open. People have been walking in uh, fairly slowly, but going into election day here, more than 700,000 people had already voted. So the polls close at 7.30 tonight. And Ohio uh, counts their ballots fairly quickly. So we are expecting a result Uh, tonight on issue one. And then, of course, regardless, it goes on to November. So abortion will be front and center here in Ohio, uh, really the biggest argument of anywhere in the country for the next several months, of course, going into the next campaign as well. But but Jeff, they just need a simple majority to make it a 60 percent threshold in the future, right? And that is the question here. A 50 percent majority tonight makes it a 60 percent majority needed November and beyond. Yeah, interesting. Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Uh, panel's here uh, to discuss. So, uh, Michael, you just heard Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose tell Zeleny that he, that he rejects the premise that this is about uh, anti-abortion politicians trying to change the rules uh, just so as to prevent abortion rights being enshrined in the Constitution. W- what do you think? Well, I think that he's running for the Senate and he wants to grab uh, the nomination, so he's running to the right, and this is very helpful to him, as it was 20 years ago for Ken Blackwell when he said when he spoke the quiet part out loud and said the Bush campaign thinks they can win Ohio if we put gay marriage on the ballot as a referendum. Um, So he thinks this is going to be helpful to him politically. I think it's going to be helpful for Democrats in the end. Jason, a new CNN poll, SSRS poll out today shows that 64 percent of adults in the United States disapprove of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade last year. Only 36 Approved. Do those numbers surprise you? No, they don't. And actually, to his point about it, 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 of course, it's about abortion. And there's no way around it. I, now, I believe that there should be a 60% threshold, but I would have liked to have seen it a year ago or two years ago put into place. Not now. But to the point about the polls showing support for abortion, I think what you're going to find is that if this loses today, if Prop 1 loses, and then the abortion question is wins in November— then it's not really an issue next year. And so I don't know what you're fighting for next year. Now, if it wins today, then you could then surmise, all right, then we'll try again next year and get the 88 counties, the votes there, and then really put it on the ballot in the Senate race. So in a way, I think losing now for the abortion rights folks helps them next year because then they can come back stronger and make it an issue in the Senate campaign. Otherwise, it's, it's a done issue. Ayesha, take a look at this map. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned, at least six states have either passed ballot measures to protect abortion rights or rejected measures that would have restricted abortion rights. When when it is put to voters, um, abortion rights Mm -hmm. does seem to be the popular 
uh, position, I- including in, in states that are that trend red. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly because w- what happens is when you talk about abortion in theoretical terms, I think you know people will come out on different ways. But then when you start talking about women who are having miscarriages or have difficult pregnancies and need health care, or you hear about rape victims or health issues, then you see the public saying, no, they do want some abortion rights. And the fact is, when you look at this from a, a, as a popular issue, this has been a loser for Republicans. And you have some Republicans coming out and saying, maybe we went a little too far, maybe we, because this is not a winning issue, but it has been a way to motivate their base. Panel, uh, stick around because uh, we're also following this other big story playing out on Capitol Hill. Uh, CNN has some new reporting that House Republicans appear to have reached a, what seems a foregone conclusion that President Biden will face an impeachment inquiry by the end of the year. Republicans say the impeachment inquiry would be to investigate President Biden's alleged ties to Hunter Biden's business dealings when President Biden was Vice President Biden. CNN's Lauren Fox is with us from Capitol Hill. So, Lauren, what, what are House Republicans and is there a difference between uh, what are the Republicans saying and, and what's the difference between an impeachment inquiry and an impeachment hearing or vote? Yeah, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has gone to great lengths, Jake, to make it clear that Republicans think that there could be the grounds for an impeachment inquiry in upcoming weeks. But he's really stopped short of saying when he would open that impeachment inquiry or specifically if he is going to do it. But behind the scenes, a lot of Republicans believe that this is a foregone conclusion, that Republicans are marching toward opening this impeachment inquiry. But the huge question is, would the votes exist on the House floor to actually open this inquiry? It is true that normally when you would open an investigation of impeachment, you have to have a vote in the House of Representatives. And we know that Kevin McCarthy has a slim majority. Just a handful of Republicans could really block this from moving forward. I think that's why you're seeing the Speaker be so careful in how he talks about this, arguing that he believes they could get more evidence potentially if they open the impeachment inquiry, but again, stopping short of saying when he would open it. And and McCarthy, he's been insistent, as you note, that he hasn't yet decided whether to open up a formal impeachment inquiry. Um, How do you square that with this move? Yeah, I think that behind the scenes, a lot of Republicans believe that it's going to happen. But the reality is you still have work to do to convince some Republicans who won in swing districts, including one of those, Don Bacon, who spoke to CNN for this piece, saying, did the president commit high crimes and misdemeanors? The committees need to do more digging to clarify this. There's tons of smoke. But let's verify what's beneath it all. You're picking up there that there are a lot of Republicans who might still have questions about whether this is the best path forward, both because they are not sure the evidence exists and also because electorally it could be problematic for them, Jake. And that is why you're seeing publicly McCarthy say one thing, but behind the scenes, a lot of Republicans believe that he will eventually move forward. Can I just say evidence of of, of what? I mean, Hunter Biden, you don't have to convince probably many of our viewers that he's not exactly going to be winning man of the year, but but what exactly did President Biden do 
when it comes to Hunter's sleazy business dealings? Well, this is exactly the question that some Republicans in swing districts are concerned about, Jake. And the argument that you hear from leadership is that potentially an impeachment inquiry would give Republicans more power to get witnesses, to get documents, to try to uncover more information. But you are right to point out there is no evidence, despite the fact that there have been months of investigations between the Judiciary and Oversight Committee that ties for President Joe Biden to his son's business dealings abroad. And that is specifically where some of this concern and heartache is kind of leaning among the moderate members. So McCarthy also, we should note, he's emphasized the difference between launching an impeachment inquiry and voting on articles of impeachment. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, opening an inquiry, he argues, does not make it the fact that Republicans would have to ultimately vote on impeachment on the floor. But I think you have a lot of Republicans who say, you know, once the horses are out of the barn, how do you get them back in, especially in an election year where many Republicans would view not voting on impeachment after opening an impeachment inquiry as potentially clearing President Joe Biden. So that is one of the concerns here is if you go down this road, do you have to follow through? All right, Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Let's uh continue this discussion with my panel. So, Aisha, again, Hunter Biden, there's no question, the guy is troubled. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, he's got this Mm -hmm. plea deal going on. I guess that blew up, having Mm -hmm. to do with all sorts of not not reporting his taxes, Mm -hmm. gun charge. Mm -hmm. His personal life is a mess. This other kid in Arkansas... Yeah, drug and alcohol issues, uh, on and on and on. Lit, Traded yeah. on his family's yes. name, every, yes. all that. Yes. Where are the high crimes and misdemeanors that have to do with Joe, Joe Biden. Biden? I mean, you so could impeach yes. Hunter Biden <laughs> yeah, he could as the presidential impeached. son, yes. Yes. sure. Yes. And but I think that's the issue because even when I'm, you know, I, I feel like I'm pretty politically savvy, and I'm asking the question, well, what did Biden do? Right. And I'm like, so how is the average person who is not as engrossed in this going to know? Like, it sounds like what they keep saying is. We don't want to clear Biden, but we have to investigate to find something to convict him. But it's like, is that the way it works? Shouldn't you have some evidence or or have some idea of what he did before you move forward with an impeachment? I, I, I'm going to come to you in a second, Michael, but, but help me out here. I'm, I'm trying to understand. I, I think there's a bigger play here, right, politically. I think you've got a, a very slim majority in the House You've got FAA reauthorization. You've got 13 appropriations bills. You've got the farm bill. That, and you've got a small minority of Republicans out there saying, we need to do this. And so McCarthy, I think, is kicking the can down the road, theoretically. And to the point about the, the barn doors are open and you can't get the horses back in, I don't think it's fairly accurate in the sense that if this inquiry, whatever that means, I don't really even know myself, comes back with the same thing that we're all saying right now is what are the high crimes and misdemeanors? And McCarthy's going to have the same decision then that he would have now. But at least he has this inquiry that shows, all right, there was nothing there. Otherwise, we're going to go back in time and we're going to investigate Roger Clinton or Neil Bush or the, whoever that brother of Obama was and <laughs> Kushner and Don Jr. I forgot I mean, about that guy. Well, yeah. Neil Bush actually cost the taxpayers a $1.3 billion bailout when his dad right. was well, president. That's the point, everybody yeah. has a relative that doesn't, you don't necessarily want on the front lines, right? But- we're setting an awful precedent here yeah. by we're we're continuing to say, all right, well, we're going to get you back for what you did to us. And what happens to the next administration, whether it's Biden or even, you know, further in eight years down the road? So I remember when Speaker Pelosi was being pressured by the left wing of her party to launch impeachment uh, hearings about President George W. Bush having to do with 
weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and this and that, and she pushed it back. I don't get the sense that McCarthy has the same relationship with the far right in his party that Pelosi did with, with the far left. I think you're right, but I also think, I mean, you remember bye-bye Marjorie. This would be bye-bye Kevin. It, he would lose his majority. It would be a political suicide mission for him to go through with this. He has 18 vulnerable members who are Republicans who are in um, Biden won districts, and 12 of them won by less than 5%. This would be politically uh, destructive to Kevin McCarthy to go through with this. And unlike in 99, you know, uh, Leader Schumer, if it were to ever get to the Senate, would dismiss the the trial. There wouldn't even be a trial. He would dismiss the charges, as Robert Byrd tried to do, uh, the conscious of the Senate. Um, Schumer would just dismiss the charges. There would never be a trial. I still just don't even understand what the the allegation is. The allegation Mm -hmm. is that the Biden... You hear all these Republicans on Fox talking about the Biden crime family. I I get the the brothers and the son trafficked on the family name, which uh, unfortunately is unbelievably common in Washington, <laughs> yeah. Well, you never hear about that in D.C. No, <laughs> no. one uses their family name. Right. Uh-uh. Well, so let's go through. The, the, he would be the fourth president, theoretically, be, yeah. to be charged with high crimes and misdemeanors. This is after Andrew Johnson, who violated the uh, Tenure of Office Act, Bill Clinton for lying under oath and supporting perjury during Monica Lewinsky, Trump twice, once for pressuring a foreign country, Ukraine, to investigate Biden, and then, of course, for inciting the insurrection. Um, McConnell actually argued against impeaching yeah. Biden. He said impeachment should be rare, not common, but yeah. boy, I mean, it's getting common, huh? It's getting very common. I mean, I was on, you know, two of those impeachments I helped cover <laughs> under Trump. And at the end of the last one, I thought, well, you know, we'll, maybe we'll do this again in a, in a year or two. And it seems like that's what's happening. But what happens is when you use these or these mechanisms over and over again, they become meaningless because it, it becomes clear that impeachment will not be used to remove anyone from office. It just becomes a political tool. But one of the biggest differences here between impeachment under Trump, this, this is about an obsession with the president's kid. Yes. Right. And we can all agree. And I think this is like a tale of all the time, as you said, that Children of politicians benefit off of their family name. It might be unseemly, but it's certainly not illegal. Um, I think Vice President Pence's daughter got a book deal. Um, I think, as I said, as we said, Neil Bush uh, was on, used his name to get on the board of a bank in Colorado that went bankrupt. Uh, this is very common and not unusual, but it's not illegal. No, but I think it, it, I think you have to look at it from at least from a base perspective. Is that there is this perception out there, and I think in some cases, rightly so that the first Trump indictment was bogus, that it was based on a phone call. And so you have this sentiment out there that the Republicans are able to feed off of that says, well, wait a minute, this guy, Hunter Biden, is continuing well, to, to be talk fair, about was, the big guy. It was about guy. bribing a, for, an, an, a foreign well, country I, I got you, with congressional it, authorized aid. I don't think either side is helping each other, uh-huh. yeah. right? And I think that Hunter Biden certainly is playing but, into that with the helping the big guy aspect. Putting family in play is setting a very dangerous I, I, precedent. I don't disagree. Yeah. I'm All just right. saying I think we're minimizing. Jason Osborne, Michael LaRosa, and Ayesha Roscoe, thanks so much for being here. The eerie and frightening threats allegedly made by the cousin of the Uvalde school shooter that resulted in his arrest. What did he say that make, made his mother turn him in? Then, a new study showing that older women are often overdiagnosed for breast cancer. Which ages are impacted the most and why this can be actually pretty dangerous. Stay with us. In our law and justice lead, the cousin of the mass shooter who slaughtered 19 children and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas last year, the cousin 
has been arrested for threatening to commit the same crime. Court documents showing 17-year-old Nathan James Cruz was taken into custody Monday and charged with making terroristic threats. CNN's Ed Lavendera is covering this troubling story. Ed, what more do we know about Cruz's arrest? Well, we know that it was a phone call from the suspect's mother to San Antonio police that started this investigation. And according to an arrest warrant affidavit that we've obtained, uh, it shows that the mother told investigators uh, that uh, Cruz was saying that he was going to do the same thing that his cousin did when he attacked the Robb Elementary uh, Elementary School back in May of 2022, where 19 children were killed, including two teachers as well. So there were a great deal of concern on behalf of the mother and the sister who also spoke with investigators. And that court affidavit also says that the mother says she overheard a conversation Cruz had with an unidentified person where he was trying to arrange the illegal purchase of an AR-15 firearm. The sister also told investigators, Jake, that uh, uh, her brother had threatened her and had also made another reference to shooting up uh, a school as well. So that information uh, led them to call and contact San Antonio police and investigators there have charged this 17-year-old with um, uh, two criminal charges, one felony of making terroristic, terroristic threats on a public building as well as terroristic threats to a family, and he's being held on a $160,000 bond. Jake? Do we know what school he was threatening? The affidavit does not detail specifically what school it was, but the mother told investigators that she was concerned because they live near an elementary school and that her son is also on probation and was also intoxicated when he was making these comments. So a lot of disturbing details emerging from these court documents and this arrest. Ed Levendera in Dallas for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, a Democratic congressman calls razor wire set up underwater in the Rio Grande River a, quote, death trap. For migrants, I'm going to ask him what else he saw at the border today and what can be done about the migrant crisis. Stay with us. In our national lead, Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas today saw his state's controversial border barriers up close, the buoys and razor wire installed in the Rio Grande River. The state says that they're not a danger to anybody. I want you to look right here at this chainsaw-type device they hit right in the middle of these buoys. Castro is now calling on the Justice Department and the Biden White House to be more aggressive in responding to Republican Governor Greg Abbott's border initiative, known as Operation Lone Star. Governor Abbott's initiative has also separated at least 26 family units on the southern border, according to an immigration attorney. And Congressman Castro joins us now from Eagle Pass, Texas. Congressman, uh, tell us what you saw after seeing these barriers with your own eyes. I mean, what I saw, Jake, were were drowning devices, were basically death traps. Um, You go right up to uh, this gate, and there's razor wire right beyond that on the banks of the river. And the wire is placed in areas where the water comes above it, and people can basically get stuck on it, bump right into it. And then there are these barrel traps that we saw that are placed in the water that are being called buoys, but they've got a kind of chainsaw device right in the middle of them. So these things are clearly meant to to injure and to hurt and to kill people, possibly, that come into contact with them. Now, Governor Abbott's office would argue, I would think, they're not meant to injure or hurt or kill people. They are meant to discourage people from crossing 
uh, at the Rio Grande crossing uh, the United, into the United States uh, that way. And they might argue there have been any number of migrant deaths. I think it's something like 850 um, because of the policies that the Biden administration has. Uh, where are the Democratic tiers for those individuals? That's, I'm paraphrasing what I think they might say. Sure, no, and look, I think there's a few things we can agree on. Number one, uh, it is best for people and safest for people to cross at a port of entry. But it's also true that throughout American history, there have been people, families and others that are so desperate that they try to make it across the river. And what the governor has done is inhumane in two ways. First, where he's placed the razor wire in the barrel trap is in an area that forces migrants to, to swim in a deeper part of the water. In other words, he's forcing them to go to a deeper part of the water where they may drown. If, however, they encounter those buoys and those raised in that razor wire, uh, you know, then he's creating an incredibly dangerous situation for people. And so really the, the issue is we know that some people, despite our warnings, are going to try to make it across the river. The question as Americans, as people who consider ourselves moral persons, is how do you treat them? Do you treat them like people or do you treat them like animals? There's a right way to do things and a wrong way, and this is all wrong. To play devil's advocate, what do you make of the argument that every country is allowed to have borders? The United States is allowed to have borders and to allow to uh, demand that if individuals come into the country, they do so through points of entry. Uh, that's true. Every country is allowed to have a border. The United States has a border. In fact, we've never dedicated more resources to the border than we do right now. And I'll give you specifically, we have three or four times the number of Border Patrol agents patrolling the U.S.-Mexico border than we did 20 years ago. We have drones on the border. We have uh, anti-tunneling technology at the border. So we have billions and billions of dollars of resources at the border right now. So there is still this question about how you treat people. Do you treat them humanely or do you treat them like animals? Greg Abbott is treating them like animals. Title 42, the pandemic era policy used for three years to expel uh, migrants uh, to Mexico or to their home countries in a quick manner. That ended in May. Uh, The number of arrests at the border dropped significantly in June, which the Biden administration trumpeted. But now, according to Preliminary data obtained by the Washington Post, that number is spiking back up. It spiked back up again uh, in July. What what do you make of this all? Uh, I think that we're going to see what we've seen throughout history, which is you do have some spikes at times. You have highs and lows. Um, The question is, well, what do you do with that? I think one of the things in what we heard today from local officials in Eagle Pass and community members is that the administration and those in Congress do need to provide as much support to local communities like Eagle Pass, El Paso, Laredo, and others, McAllen, that are right on the border uh, and are bearing the brunt of, these, of this influx. Uh, but as you said, uh, border crossings are way down since the end of Title 42. So this invasion that Republicans talked about, this huge you know, swath or swarm of migrants that was going to come, that never happened. It never materialized. Uh, and yet, they use that to create fear and use it as their number one boogeyman issue with the American people. Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis was recently asked about his new border proposal, which uh, would allow uh, potentially a deadly force against drug traffickers uh, who demonstrate 
hostile intent. Uh, take a listen. How do you well, discern not, if it's a child, a mother, uh, or Obviously, a cartel yeah, if member? If it's a child, I mean, you're not going to do that. But I mean, they have. Right, but a pregnant mom in a baseball cap with a backpack. They have, versus... they have indications. Okay. I mean, I think it's. I mean, if you have people blow torching through a border wall, that is not going to be. That's yeah, not but as you fly. mentioned, how do you know but, you're, but you you're using that. deadly force it's against the, same the right people? Same way you people. would do in any situation. Same way a police officer would know. Same way uh, somebody operating in Iraq would know. What did you make of that? A few things. Number one, he's talking about a kind of racial or ethnic profiling of people. And if Ron DeSantis was ever to become president and implemented that policy, it's likely that it would not only harm migrants, but would actually end up harming a bunch of people, brown-skinned people, who are American citizens. So it's very dangerous. Uh, but the second thing is, Jake, I don't think Ron DeSantis is ever going to be president of the United States. Uh, his campaign is going nowhere. He's trying to imitate Donald Trump, and it's very pathetic. Congressman Joaquin Castro, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Good to be with you. Speaking of Ron DeSantis, he is shaking up his presidential campaign again. What those changes could mean for the 2024 race. Stay with us. In our politics lead, a major campaign shakeup for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Today, his campaign manager is out, replaced by James Uthmeyer, who was the chief of staff in his gubernatorial office. This does seem a sign that the campaign is still trying to figure out how to gain momentum as Governor DeSantis continues to trail far behind the frontrunner, former President Donald Trump. CNN's Jessica Dean is here. Jessica, in, in the last few months, just the month, the DeSantis campaign has seen layoffs and now a new campaign manager. A significant move, you think? Right. Well, so that's what I was going to say. This is simply a continuation of a shakeup that's been ongoing now for several weeks, even up to a month. I think it is significant when the person at the very top, the top campaign official, is replaced. And this is somebody that is a chief of, that has been the chief of staff in his gubernatorial office, somebody that he really trusts, uh, that he is bringing in. Of course, the question is, uh, running a gubernatorial office is one thing. Running a national presidential campaign is something else. And what might that look like? What might uh, what changes might that bring? We don't know yet. Uh, but it does come after he laid off nearly one third of his staff. He's been on this bus tour, this kind of reboot, this retooling of his campaign. I was there in Iowa with him in the last couple of weeks. I actually asked him about this. And I, I said, you know, you're asking people to make you the chief executive. There's all of these changes. What should they make of this? And he said, don't focus on process, focus on substance. And he said, you have to have a commander's intent. And when they're not following that, you have to make changes. And if you talk to people around him, uh, they still believe it's early, uh, that he can continue to, he's, we're going to see him in Iowa over and over and over again, and that they believe they can put in the work there and that it, it will bear out. But it is interesting, Jake, his stump speech so far has pretty much remained the same, even though it's kind of a retooling. Is there any discernible change in how he's campaigning, how he's, uh, dealing with reporters, how he's dealing with Donald Trump, or anything at all. Right. He's doing more interviews. Obviously, he, you spoke with him, and that kind of kicked off a string of interviews with, with major networks. That's been a change. He's doing a lot more talking to the press just generally on the road as well. And then the bus tour that I mentioned, we're seeing him go back now very frequently to Iowa. So when they started out, it was this, we're running a national campaign. We're going to be everywhere, not just the early states. And now we've really seen them zero in, especially on Iowa, and, and really kind of this Iowa or bust idea that he really needs to gain momentum there. And then we look ahead to about 
two weeks from now with that first Republican debate, uh, they, like so many of these other candidates besides Donald Trump, hoping that's the moment that they really catch fire. Right. Iowa, obviously a uh, state that Donald Trump did not win in 2016. Also, uh, the Republican governor there, Kim Reynolds, uh, does seem rather supportive, Mm -hmm. uh, even if she has not formally endorsed him. Uh, Thank you so much, Jessica Dean. Let's talk about this uh, with Eric Erickson. He's host of The Eric Erickson Show. Uh, Eric, so two billionaire donors have recently dropped their contributions to Ron DeSantis, reportedly over disagreements with uh, how he's emphasizing some of these social issues. Hotel entrepreneur Robert Bigelow told Reuters, quote, extremism isn't going to get you elected, unquote. Um, What do you think? Should DeSantis and his campaign manager take these messages to heart as they continue the campaign shakeup? These are obviously donors who think uh, that DeSantis needs to be able to win over these independents that Donald Trump lost in 2020. You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily take the billionaire donors' uh, advice on this because billionaire donors, even within the GOP, tend to be much more moderate than where the base is. I'd go back to something Jessica said, that his message hasn't changed. I've talked to people at the Super PAC, never back down, and people around DeSantis, and the number one thing that I hear is is the message. DeSantis is the message, uh, and the message is still predominantly anti-woke, which everyone knows. He's pivoted to an economic message nationwide in a big speech and an op-ed, but it hasn't trickled down to the campaign trail. People still don't know what his economic pocketbook message is. And even Republican internal polling for multiple campaign shows, their number one issue is pocketbook issues. Right. Um, other than Chris Christie, Asa Hutchinson, and Will Hurd, most Republican candidates have used kid gloves when dealing with the frontrunner, Donald Trump. We're starting to see some of this shift a little bit. Uh, for example, when Mike Pence uh, qualified for the debate, a spokesperson said, quote, Hopefully, former President Trump has the courage to show up, unquote. How do you see this all shaking out? Do you think DeSantis, Pence, and others are going to start more aggressively making the case against Donald Trump? I do. In fact, DeSantis on the campaign trail in Iowa and in his NBC interview have been a little more aggressive. They're doing it differently, though. When you listen to Will Hurd, when you listen to Chris Christie, they're very aggressive and they're attacking. And I actually think that does more harm than good. It, it brings his supporters to support him because they're perceived as being to the left of everyone else anyway. Uh, a Mike Pence and a DeSantis, their attacks aren't reassuring to Trump supporters, uh, but they're doing it more tactically than they are with an overarching theme of just how terrible the man is. Uh, they're going after stepping on rakes as opposed to just his character in general. And I think that will, over time, particularly as a Fulton County indictment might come, will start to weigh down on Trump's campaign. Today, you posted, quote, the amount of media coverage of Trump's indictments right now has sucked the oxygen out of the room. In audience research, everyone is tired of hearing about Trump, but the media keeps force feeding speculation, unquote. Um, Do you think people, especially Republican voters, have grown numb to the coverage of uh, Donald Trump's alleged criminality? And if so, uh, is the solution to it uh, what DeSantis is doing, the more uh, tactical idea of, hey, this guy's going to have trouble getting elected in November kind of thing? Yeah, I do. Look, Jake, my radio show went from just being in Atlanta to nationwide from Salem, Oregon, down to Miami. And we've done a lot of audience research. And even in in my audience research, and I know that others have seen the same thing, uh, even Trump voters are just exhausted by it at this point. Um, They don't want to hear about it. And so it it falls on deaf ears. They're desensitized to it. So I think a repivot from all of the regular attacks on Trump to 
if he wins, he can only serve one term and he's going to be bogged down and, oh gosh, here's a fourth indictment. He's going to be in court, not on the campaign trail. Those messages, I think, begin to resonate with voters. The closer you get into campaign season, we're still in get back to school season. We haven't gotten to Labor Day yet. People will start paying more attention once we get past Labor Day. How do you suss up the the, uh, the field? How do you, when you look at, I mean, do you still think Donald Trump is likely to get the nomination? Who do you think is the strongest candidate to take him on? You know, I, I do look at Donald Trump and, and think most voters right now, if the election were today, would, but it's not. And it's piecemeal. Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, events will change. Uh, for the longest time, I really did think DeSantis seems to be making the case. He certainly has the most money. I'm very intrigued, though, by what's happening with Tim Scott. He's starting to go up in Iowa. Uh, a lot of people who are looking at DeSantis are moving in his direction, just in thought, not necessarily vote so far. And there seems to be resonating this, I'm just a, a normal, happy guy who loves America, who thinks we can do something different, versus the nonstop anti-woke message that DeSantis has put out there. Interesting. Eric Erickson. Always good to have you on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Could a popular new weight loss drug also reduce the risk of heart attacks and strokes? Dr. Sanjay Gupta is next. And our health lead, Wegovi, a popular weight loss drug might help lower the risk of you having a stroke or even a heart attack. While the results from this recent clinical trial have yet to be peer-reviewed or published in a medical journal, This does mark the first time that a weight loss drug alone seems to have such protective benefits for the heart. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta is here to further explain. Sanjay, why is this trial so significant? Well, I think I think it might surprise some people that uh, there hasn't been trials that have shown weight loss drugs to have this kind of benefit because losing weight, people who are overweight or obese, uh, you'd think would have this positive benefit on cardiac events overall. But as you point out, at least in this press release so far, Jake, we got to see this published, as you point out, in a peer-reviewed journal. But if it holds up, it would be the first time that you have a weight loss drug, again, not for diabetes specifically, that actually has shown this this benefit. So here's here's what they did. It was about 17,000 people that were uh, they say were in this study. <clears throat> some got the the Wigovi, <clears throat> excuse me, something in my throat. Some some got the Wigovi 2.4 milligrams. Some people got a placebo. They got standard of care. Otherwise, they were followed for a year. And what they found was that at the end of that year, there was about a 20% reduction in cardiac events overall. Um, heart attacks, could be stroke, could be other things. Again, we got to see the final paper to understand what that was specifically. But that's, that, that, those are pretty significant numbers. You get any medication, any kind of intervention that's leading to that sort of benefit, uh, it's worth paying attention to, Jake. What implications <laughs> might this have for the use of the weight loss drug? You know, I think that the most significant implication probably has to do with the way insurers will look at this medication. It's expensive. It's about 1300 bucks a month. Um, for weight loss, insurers may not, some may cover it, some may not. If you say, look, we now have good evidence that it can reduce the likelihood of these cardiac events, uh, that could spur insurance companies to be more likely to cover it. We will see. Again, these are early days. So far, it's been a press release. But if it holds up, I think that's going to be the biggest, the biggest implication overall. Let's also talk about this new study revealing just how often breast cancer is overdiagnosed among older women. Sanjay, what did this study find and what are the potential harms that come with that? 
Yeah, so, you know, when talking about overdiagnosis, it's not saying that they found things that weren't there. They found these, these specific breast cancers, but what this study is really saying is that they found breast cancers in older women that may not have likely ever caused a problem in their lifetime. Breast cancers that would not grow significantly or that the woman simply would not live long enough for that breast cancer to be a problem. And here, here's what they found. As you got older, the, the overdiagnosis became more common. Ages 70 to 74, 31%. Uh, 75 to 84, 47%. 85-plus, Jake, 54%. So, you know, this is one of those things. That on one hand, we hear, we've heard recently that earlier screening may be beneficial, but this is really looking at uh, women who are older and the benefit of screening in, at that age. It's still an open question, but though, again, those numbers are worth paying attention to. What are the current breast cancer screening recommendations? So between the ages of 40 and 49, that's been the biggest sort of back and forth recently between the United States Preventative Task Force and other screening organizations. The task force says women 40 and older should be screened. Right now, the official recommendation is until age 50, talk to your doctor. If you have a family history, if there's some, some other concern that increases your risk, probably getting those breast cancer screenings earlier, 50 to 74. That's the clear evidence. That's when you should be getting one every couple of years, more often if there's obviously concerns. And then again, it's the 75 plus, Jake, for all the reasons we were just talking about, which is still a, a little bit of an open question. If you've had breast cancer in the past and now you're 74, 75 years older, you should still be getting uh, screened, obviously. But if you've never had a, a positive mammogram, never had a concern, no family history, when you get to 75, I think that's what this study shows is you run into the real risk of overdiagnosis at that point. So as always, talk to your doctor about that. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Just into the lead, Donald Trump's lawyers and federal prosecutors are heading back to court this week. Moments ago, Judge Tanya Chutkin scheduled a hearing for Friday where both sides will discuss what restrictions, if any, should be placed on Mr. Trump's ability to publicly share evidence with the public. In that 2020 election case, Trump's team has tried to push that hearing to next week, but Judge Chutkin was not willing to delay it. She did say, however, that Trump himself is not required to be at the hearing in person. The mayor of Tampa, Florida, reeling in quite a catch, will explain next on The Lead. But first, here's CNN's Wolf Blitzer to tell us what's next in this situation room. Wolf? Jake, John Kirby, a key White House national security official, will join me live right here in the situation room. We'll discuss, uh, get his reaction to new CNN reporting on the increasingly sober Western assessments of Ukraine's counteroffensive which is moving much slower than expected. Also tonight, I'll speak with Mark Short, the former chief of staff to then Vice President Mike Pence. I'll get his thoughts on the new indictment against Donald Trump and the possibility the former vice president could be called to testify at his trial. All of that, much more coming up right at the top of the hour here in The Situation. Tampa, Florida reeled in a 70-pounder but it wasn't a 70-pound fish. Mayor Jane Castor was fishing in the Florida Keys with her family last month when she hauled in a package containing 70 pounds of cocaine. According to the U.S. Border Patrol, 25 bricks of coke were inside the package, which have an estimated street value of $1.1 million. There she blows, as they say. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, Blue Sky, if you have an invite. I'm back on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show 
at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcasts. All two hours of sitting there like a big, delicious pizza pie. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.